This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 160, Comic Talk, Amazing Spider-Man 2 Primer. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 160. It's the Comic Talk it's Amazing Spider-Man 2 Primer episode. This is your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, if this is your first time listening to Comic Shenanigans, welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thanks once again for uh, giving us a shot. Uh, this is our uh, first non-reviews episode in a little while. Um, for regular uh, listeners of the show, you'll notice that we've had a bit of a hiatus recently. Um, our last non-reviews episode was on April 5th, which as I'm recording this was about uh, 20 days or three weeks ago. Um, after that, we took about a week off, which was originally unplanned, and then we had a, a double-shot review episode with episode 159 where we looked at the reviews of comics for April 2nd and April 9th releases. Um, the, the plan was then to do episode 160 that week, but uh, health and uh, health concerns and, and life and all sorts of fun things came up in the way. Uh, so I decided that instead of screwing up the numbering, I would keep the next episode as a non-reviews episode, which leads us to episode 160 that you're listening to right now. Uh, as I record this, it's April 25th. It's a week before The Amazing Spider-Man 2 finally gets released in North America. Um, with that in mind, I thought I'd do a little bit of a comic talk episode focusing on uh, some good stuff with regards to kind of priming people up for the upcoming film. Um, so in particular, looking at... You know, some good Harry Osborn storylines from the past, you know, however many years, I guess the last, what, 50 years of Spider-Man or something like that. Um, and I also thought I'd take a look at some Electro stories, etc. So, uh, let's talk about Electro first. So, uh, it's interesting that for a character that's considered to be one of the kind of core rogues gallery, uh, he hasn't actually made as many appearances as one, as one would perhaps think. Uh, and he especially hasn't made it that many um, kind of most notable, uh, you know, kind of marks upon Spider-Man's life either as a villain. Um, he was created in the 60s. He was created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. He first made his appearance in Amazing Spider-Man quite early. Um, I believe he first showed up in issue number 9. That would have been February 1964. Um, it's kind of a classic, uh, classic superhero, supervillain of the time in that his, his, uh, his origin's actually relatively simple. Uh, you know, a guy, uh, a blue-collar engineer and lineman repairing a power line gets hit by a freak lightning accident, and it turns into a living electrical capacitor. Um, and that's about it. And it's kind of interesting that that's how simple it was um, to create a villain back in the day. And he definitely has a very iconic look. Um, you know, he wears a, a bright green costume with yellow. Uh, he's got yellow lightning bolts going up his legs. He's got a giant lightning bolt mask. Uh, very iconic. Uh, he made a lot of appearances on the an original animated series. Maybe not a lot, but it felt like a lot. I mean, I... Sorry, it felt like a lot, but apparently it was only three. He made three appearances on the original 1967 uh, Spider-Man animated series. One of my favorite series of Spider-Man, to be honest. Um, he only made one appearance, uh, one real appearance on the uh, Spider-Man animated series in the 90s, um, which originally was because Sandman and Electro were two villains that were supposed to be used um, in James Cameron's proposed Spider-Man movie. And it's actually interesting that Sandman and Electro never ended up, well, Electro ended up kind of making an appearance on that show. Uh, but considering how that show used so many of, of the classic villains, the only one who was really missing was Sandman. Uh, Electro ended up showing up, but not the real version. It was more 
um, some weird version of Electro that's I think it was supposed to be like Red Skull's son or something. It was really super weird. Um, and not in, in any way what anyone would ever expect. Uh, we got... Uh, anyway, so Electro, classic villain, maybe not a lot of appearances in Spider-Man's actual history. Uh, obviously, he was included as part of the original Sinister Six, so that definitely uh, makes him notable. Um, now, I have to say, when I first started reading comics... Um, I remember it was around Maximum Carnage, so that's around 93, 94, and I remember seeing uh, advertisements for the storyline called Light the Night, which came out after Maximum Carnage. Um, for a long time, that was kind of what I thought of as Electro. I've actually read it, and not the greatest story, not the greatest interpretation of the character, the art's really lackluster, but for a long time, that's what always kind of stood out of my mind. Um, when I first started kind of really picking up Amazing Spider-Man on a regular basis. It was right after the uh, clone side had wrapped, and I believe it was Amazing Spider-Man 419, uh, and I believe it was Amazing Spider-Man 420 that actually started the, um, you know, uh, what I would come to know as one of my favorite uh, Electro storylines. Um, but to me as a kid, I really didn't know much about the character. Again, he hadn't really been on the 90s show. Um, he'd been on the 60s show a couple of times. So I hadn't really gotten a chance to really experience the character. Um, so And I always found myself lucky that I got to see the version that I did, and it has always been a favorite of mine since. Uh, so let's talk about what issues that actually happened in. So to bring us all back, so as I was saying, uh, issue 419 was my first real issue I started buying on a regular basis. I think originally it was a gift or I was in the hospital or something. I can't really remember. I think it might have been a gift, though. And someone gave me Amazing Spider-Man 419, which had the first appearance of the Black Tarantula, who I've always really enjoyed as a character, probably ever since that that issue. Um, the following issue, we had uh, the X-Men character being introduced as a friend of Amazing Spider-Man, which kind of an interesting idea looking back on it. Uh, issue 421 introduced the characters, the True Believers, as well as the character known as Dragonfly. Uh, and then with issue 20, 422, uh, we would meet uh, the, none other or witness the rebirth of Electro. So Electro kind of been in a weird place ever since his uh, prior, prior appearance to this, which would have been during Light the Night in the early 90s. Um, so now we have this issue 422, and uh, it's written by Tom DeFalco. Uh, it's got art by, I believe... Uh, one of my favorite Spider-Man artists of the era, who wasn't really a, who was originally a Spider-Man Unlimited artist, and that's Joe Bennett. Um, so he started illustrating this story, and issue 422 is a fantastic kind of recap of who the Electro had been as a character. Uh, he's strapped into a machine that might super, you know, kind of supercharge his powers and kind of give them back to him because he was kind of powerless after Light the Night. Um, uh, at the time, there's a lot of, if you read this comic now, it does very much feel like it's of the time, the way that Ben Yurik was being used in the book, the way that the Black Tarantula was this kind of upcoming force, the True Believers were starting to take up more and more real estate in the comic. Um, the whole idea of it really being episodic storytelling and this long-running narrative, which you kind of lose a little bit these days. I mean, when you have a writer on a book for a long time, you sometimes get a little bit more of this, especially with Dan Slott, because he seeds ideas. But it kind of feels like a, a kind of a bygone era where you had all these different plot lines kind of jumbling around in space, but somehow it still worked. Um, so issue 422 is where you have this new kind of relaunched version of, of Electro being developed, and issue 423 is when you really get to see him do his thing, again by DeFalco and Bennett, 
And in fact, it's almost uncharacteristic, but you have this supercharged Electro going up against Spider-Man, Spider-Man actually being overwhelmed and to the point where Spider-Man actually ends up begging Electro for his life, uh, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily feel like it makes a lot of sense sometimes, but if you read the issue, it, it does. It does make sense, because Spider-Man's really on the ropes. He would have died, and Electro doesn't actually care about killing him, just wants to humiliate Spider-Man after he's been humiliated in the past. So Dom, Tom DeFalco is able to kind of make something happen and make it feel uh, like it, it is true to the character, so he lets the hero live, yet it doesn't feel like a, a kind of a hackneyed way of doing it. It actually does feel like something that Maxwell Dillon would do, especially given his history as a villain. Uh, 424 has nothing to do with the current ongoing storyline at that point. It's a really kind of weird Elektra and uh, Spider-Man team-up. Um, again, Elektra of the 90s is a very distinctly different version of the character than you would get in the early to mid-2000s going on to now. Um, they didn't really know what to do with the character. She had a short-lived ongoing book. Um, she was more of a hero than this dark, conflicted, twisted individual, which you would get later on, especially when Bendis was writing the character. Um, and then issue uh, 425, you get um, a different artist. Joe Bendis gone, and he's off the book. And then 425 instead has Steve, I, I believe he, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's like Scrochy or Scrochy. Uh, he com- or Scros, he comes back on the book. Tom DeFalco continues to write it. It's a, you have an X Man team up as well. Electro, super powerful. Um, even he, even uh, Nate Gray isn't enough to kind of take him down. You know, Spider Man comes up with an awesome insulated suit, which has pre- uh, now been in so many different video games uh, as an alternate suit. I believe in the new upcoming Amazing Spider Man Two video game that's releasing next week on I believe the 29th of April. Uh, he actually has that costume. Uh, as a pre-order bonus, I think, that you can get uh, this cool insulated costume. So this has always been one of my favorite Electro storylines. Now, I think part of what it is is that, again, I was at the right age. It came out, um, you know, uh, 97, so I was 13, 13, 13 and a half years old, starting to get into Spider-Man comics on a regular basis. Previously, this, I'd been reading the X-Men comics for a, year, a couple years um, but I was really starting to fall in love with Spider-Man, and I'd always liked Spider-Man, but I hadn't really followed his comic on a regular basis, and this is where I was really getting into it, and, uh, and kind of reading the ongoing adventures, and this is why Tom DeFalco will always have such a, um, an important place for me as a comic book reader, because when I, you know, you always kind of remember when you first kind of got into comics, well, this is my first regular foray into Amazing Spider-Man. Once I started reading issue 419, I never stopped. I have never missed an issue since, well, unless you count the 700.1.2.3.4s, which I don't. Um, but ever since then, I've, I've basically always been reading Spider-Man. No matter what's been going on, no matter what books I've dropped, I've always continuously read Spider-Man comics. As, as well, Particularly Amazing Spider-Man, or Superior Spider-Man, in lieu of Amazing Spider-Man. So, this is, it's a very important era to me, and it's a great Electro storyline. Um, he also showed up in the Gauntlet era of the Brand New Day, um, I wasn't a huge fan. Partially, I didn't really like the the art and the kind of the weird kind of use of the Occupy movement at the time. I thought was I don't know. It wasn't really to my taste. Um, the kind of weird new look on of having kind of the the electrical bolt in his face. I didn't really like that either. I was never a big fan of the uh, the ultimate rendition of the character um, because the, at times it felt like he was a much younger version of the character, and sometimes he felt older. Um, I just could never quite get into that. But I've always liked how he was portrayed in this particular storyline, which again was Amazing Spider-Man 422 to 423 and 425. 
Um, also, a special note, I did enjoy his appearance in the Sin Eater uh, Returns storyline. Um, because, I mean, it's interesting because he actually plays a big part and has a really interesting role in that story. Uh, probably one of the better outings he's had, but it's also framed uh, in this background of uh, Spider-Man kind of dealing with uh, seeing what he did to Stan Carter, also the Sin Eater, in his first storyline, and him kind of pulling his punches against Electro as a result, and to his own detriment. Um, so obviously with Electro playing a huge part in the upcoming film, uh, it's kind of cool to go back and look at uh, Max Dillon's kind of previous uh, storylines and how he's been portrayed as a character. The movie, I mean, from the trailers, it really looks interesting in how they're kind of showing Maxwell Dillon as kind of being this guy who kind of idolizes and looks up to Spider-Man, this guy who kind of feels like a nobody in his own life, um, and then he kind of uh, has a chance altercation with Spider-Man that makes him feel like something else because he so idolizes a Spider-Man. Kind of an interesting way to take the character. Um, you know, that being said, doesn't feel that different. I mean, he he's not one of those characters whose background has ever really informed who he is. Besides... Um, uh, Electro's appearance in the Gauntlet era of Spider-Man, where it kind of showed him, again, kind of embracing the, those blue-collar roots. No one else has ever really used the past of the pre-Electro version of Maxwell Dolan to really explain much about who he is or what he is or why he does what he does. Um, it's probably why he hasn't really been that well-developed as a, as a Spider-Man villain. He, he's kind of more of a flunky at times. He's not really necessarily like an emboss kind of villain, uh, whereas Dr. Octopus or Green Goblin do seem more like those. There's just something about them, the gravitas they have, um, something even about their origins that seems a little bit more grandiose than, whoops, there was an accident. I mean, at least with Dr. Octopus, his accident, he was involved in it. He, had, he did build the arms that ended up being fused to his body, whereas Electro just happened to be there at the wrong place, wrong time on this power line, and that's what gave him his powers. So it, it, it kind of feels like that idea of it being kind of more of an accident and him not being that special is kind of translated to writers not necessarily taking him as seriously as a character. Uh, it's cool that he's going to be a, a villain. Um, it's interesting that he was originally going to be one of the villains in the first Spider-Man movie if James Cameron had been able to make the movie he intended on making. Um, so it is definitely interesting. Uh, I'm interested to see what Jamie Foxx can pull off with Electro as well. Um, speaking of villains from Amazing Spider-Man 2, it's hard to mention anyone... Uh, but uh, the one of the most famous goblins, not the most famous goblin, obviously, but it looks like we're going to get uh, the Green Goblin as Harry Osborn, at least if for the trailers or any indication, instead of his father, um, played by, I believe, Dane DeHaan, who I don't know from anything else. Uh, if you want to read some really great Harry Osborn stories, um, well, right now I'm looking at a trade paperback called Spider-Man, Son of the Goblin. I believe that this uh, particular trade... Uh, was published in the, I believe, late 2000s. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it was 2004, so I guess mid-2000s. Um, Son of the Goblin, this particular storyline, collects some of the more important Harry Osborn stories. In particular, it collects Amazing Spider-Man 136 to 137, uh, Amazing Spider-Man 312, and Spectac Spectacular Spider-Man 189 and 200. Uh, what it unfortunately uh, omits is uh, a classic, and I believe I discussed this on our previous Top 5 uh, Spider-Man Storylines episode, uh, it omits the classic Child Within storyline where uh, Harry Osborn basically loses his mind, starts having these weird visions of his father, and ends up becoming the Green Goblin again after a long, long period where he hadn't been the Goblin at all. 
Um, and it is Jam DeMatteis, some of his strongest work on Spider-Man, especially on Harry, showing the psychological torment that he's under as he kind of loses his mind and becomes the Green Goblin. And it's, I mean, when you when you talk about DeMatteis' run on Spectacular Spider-Man in the early 90s, really what you're looking at is the saga of Harry Osborn. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, looking at, I mean, the character originally appeared in the 60s. He was created by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. He actually, I believe, had his first appearance in the same issue that had the first appearance of uh, Gwen Stacy. Um, but uh, his most prevalent stories, obviously, I mean, if you're looking at just Harry Osborn on his own, you're looking at, I believe, Amazing Spider-Man 96 to 98, uh, where he has his first uh, interaction with drugs, which is a huge milestone, not just for comic books because they depicted drug use, but also for Harry Osborn as it depicted his his foray, foray in the drug use and really is the uh, the turner, the corner that that character turns. Uh, he's no longer with MJ at that point. I believe he gets broken up with by her either in that storyline or not that long or, uh, before that. Um, he starts taking LSD. He trips out. Uh, this interaction kind of messes up with his dad as well. Um, so it, it kind of shows that he's a troubled character. Uh, there's more going on underneath the kind of the happy, uh, supposedly happy exterior. And then in Amazing Spider-Man 121, uh, which is obviously the night when Stacy died, we have Harry Osborn kind of as an inciting incident. He once again has a relapse into drugs, and because of this, it drives his, his dad kind of crazy his dad then remembers he's the green goblin and then ends up turning back into the green goblin abducting Gwen and then killing her uh or well not necessarily killing her because it really was spider-man who inadvertently ended up uh, killing her after she was thrown from the uh, brooklyn bridge or george washington bridge depending on which version of the story you're reading by norman osborne um but really without harry osborne these things would not have happened uh, without harry osborne Having had these relapses into drugs, we probably wouldn't have Green Goblin going crazy and then killing Gwen. So really, it's kind of Harry Osborn's fault. Um, and then leading up to the, the collection, this collection here that I hold in my hands, Amazing Spider-Man 136-137 obviously is 15 issues after Gwen died, uh, which at the time was basically portrayed as being like real time. Like a, you know, it's been some time since Gwen has died. Uh, we had already been seeing in the previous issues, uh, Harry had found Spider-Man's uh, mask, and he kind of looked demented and crazy at that point. When you get to the cover of Amazing Spider-Man 136, I mean, it's pretty classic. You have Spider-Man and the Green Goblin fighting, and then uh, beneath them you have Peter and Harry yelling at each other, with Peter saying, You, Harry Osborn, but it can't be you who's, who, you've, who've turned against me. It can't be. And Harry's saying, But it is, for the Green Goblin lives again. Uh, and really, this is what I love about Silver Age covers, or not even Silver Age at this point, maybe Bronze Age, or really non-modern, is that you used to have a little bit more, uh, the comics were a little bit more verbose uh, in terms of what they put on the covers, uh, and this cover is a great one because it really gives you everything you need to know about this issue. The Green Goblin's back, uh, they don't even play up any mystery, you know exactly who it is, but you're wondering, how did this even happen? How does he become the Green Goblin? Uh, and it's a fantastic uh you know event and actually it's interesting if you watch the amazing uh, the spider-man 90s series uh, i believe season four was called partners in danger i'm trying to remember the titles of them uh in that season there is um a chapter where harry osborne basically returns 
uh, or not sorry, not, he doesn't return. The Green Goblin returns, and you're not really sure who it is, but it's actually Harry Osborn. Uh, but the issue, issue, the episode has Peter and I believe Gwen. I can't quite remember at this point who it was, um, but uh, or maybe, man, my memory is not what it used to be. I, I think when um, Mary Jane at the time was supposedly dead, but instead you had. Peter and I think Liz uh, going to see Harry Osborne, and it was Harry Osborne's apartment then blows up, which is taken directly from this particular issue of Amazing Spider-Man, where Peter and MJ have a date. They go back to their uh, the apartment that Peter shares with Harry, and it blows up, and he doesn't realize who was behind it until uh, he ends up figuring out that really it's the Green Goblin, and not only is it the Green Goblin, but it's Harry who snapped and become the Green Goblin. Um, after this two-parter. Uh, Harry Osborn tries to tell people that he's the Green Goblin and that Peter is actually Spider-Man. No one really believes him, and that's kind of it for a while. He goes into a mental institution. He eventually gets out and marries um, Liz Allen Osborn, or sorry, Liz Allen, who becomes Liz Allen Osborn. They end up having a son, Normie. He gets blackmailed by the Hobgoblin. Uh, the next cl- storyline in this particular collection is um, during the Inferno crossover in the early '90s or late '80s, actually '89. Uh, Harry dons the caution to go up against uh, the, the Hobgoblin. It's an, it's a fantastic, very memorable cover. It's Amazing Spider-Man 312. Todd McFarlane does this great, great image of Green Goblin fighting the Hobgoblin. If only both weren't the worst versions of them, and I only I mean that in the nicest way possible. But this is the also ran uh, Harry versus the also ran Hobgoblin, uh, Jason Philip Mackendale. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that people want to see the Green Goblin versus the Hobgoblin, but when you finally get it, it's not the versions of them that you in any way hoped for or expected. Um, although there is some brilliant artwork here. Uh, the next story in this collection is Spectacular Spider-Man 189, which was part of the 30th anniversary of Spider-Man at the time, which even had a nice hologram cover. This is ostensibly one of the best ones of the four that were published that year, because obviously at the time there were four Spider-Man titles. There was Web of Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, Spider-Man, and Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, this particular issue was by Sal Buscema on art and J.M. DeMatteis on, uh, on plot. Uh, looking back at the time, I'm, I can't remember the first time I got to read this issue. I think it was in the 90s. Um, and I remember not being a huge fan of Sal Buscema back in the day. And the more I read of his artwork now, the more I can appreciate his artistry. Uh, as he's, you know, he's kind of a true master in terms of the pacing, uh, the the way his art looks. I mean, it's it wasn't the splashiest artwork of the night. Uh, like especially when you considered this time period, when you had artists like Bagley and McFarlane, and then you look at someone like Buscema, and his artwork almost looks like kind of a throwback to something that you'd see in the seventies and eighties. Um, it, it would go along really well with um, some of the art by uh, Ron Friends, perhaps, but it seems almost out of place in the in the early '90s when it was being published. But it's a fantastic issue. You, you once again have this great panel of uh, of uh, the Green Goblin kind of going crazy and saying like he's going to reveal who Spider-Man is, but then he doesn't. Um, it's a really kind of messed up examination of this man's completely lost his mind. He's poisoning his child against Spider-Man. And, um, you know, maybe all's lost. And then the last issue collected in this particular collection is none other than Spectacular Spider-Man 200, 200, which, up until Brand New Day, was the last time you would see Harry Osborn in a Spider-Man book for, I think, roughly 15 to 16 years. Um, which, I mean, given how characters come back to life pretty quickly these days, is an incredibly long time. Like, that's, 
that's a generation. Um, and this is a, a really noteworthy issue because it's all about how Harry Osborn wants to kind of finally honor the legacy of his father, and he wants to kill Spider-Man. And to do this, he basically uh, he has finally has uh, his own super strength because he's used a, a slightly untested version of the Goblin formula he's, that he's reworked. Um, he, you know, basically ha- has decided that he's going to kill himself and Spider-Man together. Uh, then Mary Jane and Norma show up. He goes to go save their lives and uh, leave Spider-Man to die. And then MJ's like, how dare you? you know, we're friends. He's your friend. How can you leave him to die? Harry doesn't even know what he's doing anymore, so he goes and rescues Spider-Man. They both... They're all alive, but then because of the formula, he dies, and um, it's really it's really touching because when you even now when I read it, I mean, first of all, the last two pages there are no dialogue boxes, which given the you know still in the era of over dialoguing, uh, which it's you know pretty special and makes it uh, different than what you would have expected at the time. And what, just before he dies, Peter's like uh, you know. Um, Let's see. Peter uh, Harry says, "Stupid experimental formula." I guess the experiment was wasn't much of a success, huh? And Peter says, "You just hang on, okay? We'll get you an ambulance." You'll. Peter, uh, Harry interrupts him. I did it, Peter. Just the way, you, just the way you would have done it. A real hero. And Spider-Man just says, "Why, Harry? Why did you come back for me?" And Harry says, "Hey, what else could I do? You're my best friend." And then he dies. And um, I mean, there's a reason why he didn't come back for a long time. It's interesting that his death lasted a lot longer than Aunt May's, but eventually there was always rumors that Harry would come back, and eventually after Brand New Day, he came back, and to be honest, I don't know if there was a point to it now that we, you know, they, they used him a little bit, but having him and Norman back live at the same time almost felt like there was too many Osbournes to live, and then eventually, uh, you know, his girlfriend would become impregnated by Norman, uh, they, she would eventually have a baby, and now he's somewhere with a baby, and as with a lot of things that have happened in Amazing Spider-Man over the last, you know, five, seven years, it makes me wonder why they do certain things, because they bring back a character like Harry Osborn, and then they write him out within a few years, and they don't use him anymore. But what was the point of reversing his pretty poignant death to begin with? Uh, same thing with Aunt May. They brought her back, and then they didn't really use her that much. They were using her because she was part of the Feast Project. Uh, and then she was gone, and then she's kind of in and out of the book, and it just kind of feels like they made such a huge landmark decision to give away something important, which was Peter Parker's marriage, and then we get in return, the return of Aunt May, which is fine, I mean, no one really asked for it, but okay, and then they don't do anything with it. Then they just kind of throw the character away. So I, I feel like, what's the point of having these watershed moments? You had, you know, the amazing, it's interesting, Jim J.M. DeMatteis killed off both Harry Osborn and Aunt May did a beautiful job of both and that both were reversed and really for no good reason Uh, anyways, the last thing I wanted to talk about is a bit of a primer, so we've talked about some excellent Harry Osborn stories some good Electro stories what other character makes a prominent position in the uh, the movie well, none other than Gwen Stacy and if there are, you know, obviously there's a lot of rumors and I've purposely avoided any spoilers because I don't actually want to know before I see the film, but um, obviously it's led. you're led to assume and expect that Gwen Stacy's going to be killed off in uh, in Amazing Spider-Man 2, and I mean, to look at, to think about that, we have to kind of look at the character, um, some of her most notable appearances, which unfortunately are really her death. 
I mean, she was a long-standing girlfriend of Peter Parker, but she didn't really get any storylines dedicated to herself. Um, again, it was very much of the of the era that it was more focused on their relationship drama, often hers and Peter's, keeping them apart, and then they were together and apart and then together. The first the kind of major time they did that, and I mean they've done this a lot, but Amazing Spider-Man '88 is where they start off the major storyline that will really put a wedge in their relationship, which in some ways they never truly recover from, as uh, that is the issue where. Um, Dr. Octopus uh, kind of returns and he fights against uh, Spider-Man. Um, the following issue, they have yet another fight. Uh, but issue 190 is really the big one because um, they have yet another fight. And this is the one where something important happens where while they're fighting on the streets below, um, a chimney is toppled and all this debris is headed downwards. And this child is looking up. And Captain George Stacy lunges and saves this child, but gets uh, hit by it and basically ends up dying as a result. And this is a huge kind of watershed moment because it's the death of an important father figure for Spider-Man. And also George Stacy reveals that he knew that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, which if you go back and read the original issues really makes you wonder at what point he knew this for certain because he seems to always have an idea but he constantly, like, we, we are privy to his voice, his, uh, his internal thoughts, and he keeps on discounting it and being like, oh, well, I guess he's not. I guess he couldn't be. And yet, here he reveals that he did know, which, I mean, it's very Stanley. It's very, you know, we're going to do something bad to the hero, and we're really going to twist the knife. And that's exactly what happens here. Um, obviously, we saw a rendition of this happen in the first Amazing Spider-Man film, where we had George Stacy die as a result of being involved in an altercation with Spider-Man and a villain, in this case the Lizard. Uh, whereas in the comics he asks Peter to take care of Gwen and to protect her. And in the movie he more says stay away from her to protect her because if you're going to be Spider-Man you're going to have villains, you're going to have those who are going to find out who you are and then she's going to be a target. Don't, Please don't keep her in harm's way. Um, and at the end of the film, we get the idea that like it's a promise he intended to keep, but some things you just can't. Even though you had the best of intentions, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to follow through. Um, so that so obviously that's an extremely important storyline for Spider-Man and for Gwen. Uh, but the biggest storyline Gwen was ever involved with was the aforementioned Amazing Spider-Man 121, which is her unfortunate death, which cements her place forever as a, a huge element of the Silver Age. The Silver Age, as you know, a lot of comic book historians will say, ended with her death because it was the death of innocence in comics where suddenly a romantic interest could die. She's also one of the first women in refrigerators, which is a common uh, term that was coined by, on the internet by Gail Simone and others, uh, mainly referring to the death of Alexander DeWitt in, uh, uh, what was it, one of the first few issues of Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern in the early 90s because um, she was actually stuffed into a fridge after she was murdered uh, by the villain Major Force. And the idea that uh, a female character has been utilized uh, not in only to uh, kind of put the main uh, male protagonist through some sort of emotional ringer to uh, kind of elevate or promote uh, the evolution of his own character at the expense of the female character. And that is what happens to Gwen. I mean, his life changes forever as a result. And it's always been interesting that uh, Gwen is the flip side of the coin. Um, I mean, really, so is George Stacy, but Gwen is a more profound version of it in that um, because of Spider-Man's inaction, Ben 
Ben Parker died. So the idea of him being Spider-Man was because his inaction let someone die, therefore he can he must act, he must prevent crimes, he must put himself in harm's way to protect others because of this mo- motivating incident. However, the res- the interaction with Gwen Stacy and her death at the hands of the Green Goblin showed that that's not always necessarily true, that sometimes his acts as Spider-Man will put those around him into into mortal peril and could end up resulting in their death. Uh, it's very kind of a poignant message for Peter to kind of go through, and it has really haunted the character ever since. Uh, regardless of who he may or may not be dating or married to, the specter of Gwen Stacy has never been far. Um, some of the best Gwen Stacy stories um, are act, told after her death, and they would include such stories as Marvel's uh, issue number four, which is brilliantly told by Kurt Busiek with uh, artwork by Alex Ross. Um, which really brilliantly shows her impact as a character. Uh, Marvel's issue number four really is about the death of the Silver Age, where this character, Phil Sheldon, who's kind of uh, you know there for the Golden and Silver Age of, of Marvel Comics and the Marvels themselves, uh, he wants to kind of throw everything away and turn his back on what he's kind of made his life profession because of what happens to Gwen Stacy, because of the death of this wonderful, beautiful girl who was just innocent, and this death of this innocent is what kind of makes him kind of give up and, and, and want to turn away from what was this darkening of the world as he saw it. Um, also, Spider-Man Blue, um, a, a brilliant story by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale, um, one of my favorite Gwen Stacy stories ever, which, again, was told many years after she died. I believe it was in the early 2000s, uh, 2001, 2002. And that is really just a, a Valentine's letter to Gwen Stacy. It's a love letter of uh, Peter and, and Gwen in their earliest kind of d- days when they were starting to almost date, especially around the time when MJ was being introduced, and uh, what their feelings were towards each other. It really culminates in their first kiss. Um, it's a brilliantly told love story, uh, which is really, you know, just memorable. And was getting back to her death in Amazing Spider-Man 121. Absolutely one of the, you know, must-read Spider-Man comics of all time. Uh, one can only hope that if she does die in Amazing Spider-Man 2, that they handle it with the same level of grace. Well, maybe not grace, but that they, they really make you feel the emotion of it. I mean, it is such a dramatic issue. Uh, and Amazing Spider-Man 122 with the final stand of the Green Goblin is just an absolutely you know, fantastic comic because you really do feel for this man. He's lost the love of his life and he just wants to kill. Yet when it comes to killing, he realizes he can't do it and that um, it's not who he is and that's not something Gwen would have wanted. Um, and that there, there really was no other choice. That he has to let him survive. And um, it's and again, the death of the Green Goblin is really very much a Stan Lee-ish kind of idea that, you know... The character, just because the, the Spider-Man won't kill him, the Goblin ends up dying in his own hand. Yes, Stanley didn't write it; it was written by Jerry Conway. But you can feel um, Stanley's kind of uh, the specter of Stanley on this. Anyways, this is um, required reading when it comes to the character of Gwen Stacy. You cannot, you know, if you're going to read important appearances of the character in the comics, you cannot miss out on this particular issue. Uh, speaking of Gwen, she did not obviously make most many appearances in the 1994 animated series. She only actually made, uh, I believe, one appearance, which was in 
uh, either part one or part two or maybe both of the uh, the finale of that series. And it's interesting. The reason why Gwen never appeared in the Spider-Man animated series was the idea that um, the producers did not want fans to fall in love with a character who would eventually have to die. Uh, which is kind of an interesting... I mean, the 90s was a very interesting period of uh, censorship, especially on Fox, which was the ones developing the Spider-Man animated series. I mean, there was no punches ever thrown on the show. Um, so it's it not that surprising that they decided, you know what, we cannot introduce this character because she's meant to die. Um, however, the Felicia Hardy character that we ended up getting on that show is very much... Um, you know, she has a lot of shades of Gwen Stacy in her. I mean, I, I guess really... There's no, there's no, nothing in the Felicia Hardy character that really speaks to the character in the comics. That Felicia Hardy in, that we got in the show is really more this kind of up-class version of the character who is much more influenced as kind of this this Gwen Stacy-ish character, yet at the same time not like Gwen Stacy at all. Like it, It's kind of like they took Felicia Hardy and Gwen Stacy and they took the idea of her being kind of a blonde, pretty girl that Peter Parker would like and then made her into this weird elitist who wasn't necessarily very smart. It was kind of a weird choice. But I guess this is as Gwenish as they wanted her to be. And then eventually, when we finally got her on the show, it was a, an alternate version of Spider-Man was actually engaged to her. Um, and that was, I mean, for fans of Gwen Stacy like myself, it was really exciting to actually see her show up. Um, for a more modern take of the character, they used her in the uh, Spectacular Spider-Man series that was on a few years ago and was unfortunately um, way too short-lived. Uh, and that was probably one of the most adorable versions of the character. She was you know, still kind of this nerd, which she never really was in the comics. She was always this beautiful science student. But instead, in the uh, show, she was this cute little cute nerd who eventually starts to look more and more like her comic book self as you get further and further along that series. And now, obviously, you have uh, Emma Stone playing the character, and she's freaking adorable, um, which might make it all the harder for people who don't know her ultimate fate or if they end up doing that fate in the film. So, anyways, I think that's going to wrap us up for this uh, week's episode. Uh, next week for episode 162, we're actually going to be having a discussion of the Amazing Spider-Man 2 film. Um, I'll be doing that uh, episode with uh, Chris Lucas, who was previously on our uh, episode looking at the Winter Soldier, which I believe is episode 158. Um and uh, hopefully, and he, it should be an interesting episode because he doesn't really know anything about the character, um, and, or it's not the character, but the film. It's like, I don't believe he's even seen the first Spider-Man film yet, Amazing Spider-Man. Um, so he'll be watching that this week, and then next week we'll be going to see the film together. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what his take is because, again, as much as, you know, I like to come in as clean as possible. I do. I have read a lot of Spider-Man comics, and that's always going to inform my opinion. But his opinion will be absolutely naked of that prior knowledge, and I'm going to do my best to not tell him anything about the Gwen Stacy character and that she's meant to die because I made the mistake before we saw Winter Soldier of saying like everyone knows Winter Soldier's Bucky, and he's like, "Well, I didn't know that." I'm like, "Well, I don't know if you're kidding or not." And then when we saw uh, the movie, and there were some people in the movie theater who were actually like, "Oh my God, it's Bucky." Uh, he was like, see, not everyone knows. So I'm interested to see what he thinks and if he's surprised by her actual death. Um, because, you know, we're not used to seeing Love Interest necessarily die. Although, that being said, I mean, Rachel Dawes died in Dark Knight, which I actually was really shocked at because 
it isn't something that's done that often. Killing off a main love interest is done sometimes, but in a, in a major kind of superhero film, it's not necessarily done. Um, which is what makes it more of a shock and surprise and makes it legitimately more interesting when you are surprised by a comic book movie, or any movie really, where you think one thing's going to happen and it doesn't go that way or it goes a different way. Anyways, thank you very much for listening to this episode. This has been episode 160, our comic talk episode of the Amazing Spider-Man 2 Primer. Uh, you can send email to comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook. Uh, you can also uh, please rate and review us on iTunes and also subscribe to the show. Um, actually, just before we sign off, I completely forgot to mention the Rhino. To be fair, he hasn't had many storylines worth noting that were that good, although I will say one of my first... Um, impressions of the character. I was reading a Marvel Tales reprinting of the Sinister Syndicate's first foray, and uh, that was always, I think, as a kid, my first real impression of the Rhino. And it was, you know, it was kind of fun. Although his armor at the time was really kind of over the top, I think it was because they were tired of just making it look silly in the giant Rhino hide, um, so they gave him a little bit more of an armor. Um, if you want a really good Rhino story, though, there was two one shots that were published a few years ago as part of the Gauntlet era of Brand New Day, which are probably the best character work that Rhino's ever had. Besides that, there's the Tangled Web issues of Flowers for Rhino, where he becomes uh, brilliant and super smart. Uh, it's a really well-done story and well worth reading, if you have a, ch a chance to read it. Um, and yeah, so thank you again for listening to the episode, and we'll catch you next time. I will hope to be back with episode 161 for a double uh, reviews episode for uh, comics that would have come out, I guess, on the what, 16th and 23rd. So uh, we'll catch you then, and then come back here next week on uh, May 2nd or 3rd, depending on when the episode will go up, which will be myself and Chris Lucas talking about Amazing Spider-Man 2, and if we're lucky, maybe, just maybe, Kelly Chapman will uh, have a few things to say as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate your continued patronage of the show, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. If you're still listening to the show, just want to make a, a nice Canadian apology to our uh, our friend of the show, AJ Reese, who said routinely on the show, stop apologizing. I'm trying. I'm working on it. I'm Canadian. I try. I will never apologize again. That's probably not true. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.